New faces here. Okay. We are talking about the fatherhood of God. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time. You remember what we first mentioned about the fatherhood of God? The first example or the first way that we said that God was a father? Anybody? All right, we said that he was by virtue of being the creator, right? He was the father. Um, He's the father of creation. And um, we also said that God is the exemplary father. Before we move on from that, I didn't get get a chance to ask this question, but to get your minds rolling here, um, how does our heavenly father differ from our earthly fathers? What difference is there? He's holy, right? Your father might be, hopefully, to some degree. But that's right. I, my father's not. Yeah, that's right. He's infinite. You really could bring up like all the attributes of God. Sh- to be sure, ontologically, God is very otherly. Um, but what about how you experience? What is your experience with the Heavenly Father versus your earthly father? I know they're not the same. I know they're not the same. I have yeah. My dad loves his son Simon. Mm. Mm. So how he even images God in that sense. Yeah. As an image bearer, he he can do things which are yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, that's good. That's good. been a father mm. that's good that's good no it's good and I was thinking the same thing as kind of like what Michelle had mentioned that where our earthly fathers fall short in disciplining us and leading us because they are infallible they do fall short of the glory of God they continue to do that your heavenly father has no shortcomings he far outweighs, far exceeds um, our heaven, our earthly fathers. Uh, your heavenly father, he administers infallible correction. Um, he's very gracious when he reproves. And he, he, he perfectly disciplines us. Right? God is unquestionable in all that he does. He's perfect uh, as to whether it is for our good or not, it is unquestionable. God is perfect, and He uh, only does that which is good for us. So, God is the Father of all people by creation in a physical sense. Um, he's an exemplary Father. How else has God revealed Himself to be a Father? In relationship to the Son. In relationship to the Son. My next point, and even even to believers, 
I'm thinking of this too. Someone might have said it. He's the father of a nation. The father of Israel. Let's go to a couple of verses here. Uh, We see that God, he's the father of the nation of Israel. They were the nation of God's favor and love. Exodus 4. Turn with me to Exodus 4. And I want to show you this. Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. Someone read that for me. Go ahead. And you shall say to the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I will mm. say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Mm. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Isn't that incredible? Let my son go. Speaking about the nation of Israel, corporate people of God. Let my son go. Um, Hosea 11.1 1, um, 11, 1 also speaks to this effect. If you wanted to turn to Hosea 11.1. 1. Okay. Hosea is going to be right before the book of, uh, right before the book of Joel. Hosea 11.1. 1, it says, when Israel was a youth... I loved him. Isn't that incredible? When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now that verse has specific fulfillment in who? In Christ, who is the true Israel. Right? That's what it's speaking about. He's the true servant of God, the true Israel of God. And turn with me, maybe do a couple more passages. Deuteronomy 32, 6. Deuteronomy 32.6, let's go there. Whoever, whoever gets there, go ahead and read that. Someone read that for me. Deuteronomy 32.6. Amen. Is he not your father who has bought you? And then maybe turn with me to, to one more. That's a really good verse. Isaiah 64. Go to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Um, Somebody go ahead and read that as well. Isn't that good? That's good. So you see that e- there's even a hint at creation there as well, but specifically in regard to the nation of Israel. You are our father. And so God is a father. However, we don't want to confer from God's title as father that he is in some way a male, right? God is not a male. God is without parts. Um, you see this in, in the Gospels as well. Uh, what do these titles tell us? They tell us something about who God is and what he's done and what he's doing. If, if the Bible confers a title or speaks of God metaphorically, it's, it's describing the work that he is doing or the person that he is reflecting to us when it calls him a father and uh, when it calls him a savior. That title speaks of his work of saving, right? You see that of Jesus. You see that of Jesus as well. But we aren't to imply that God has a physical body, right? That he has a physical body or um, that he looks something like a male. 
something like that, right? What do we what do we know? Scripture tells us that God is invisible. God is spirit, right? He is without parts. Even Jesus said that, feel my wounds, right? A spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see now. Um, that is a heresy of one cult. Do you know it? Mormonism, right? Mormonism does teach that God is, in fact, a male, specifically speaking about the Father, that he is the male. One article and... Um, one article from uh, uh, a Mormon website, Mormonism website, it says, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches that all beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents. Right? You probably heard that. The children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father, and a what? A heavenly mother. A heavenly mother. They believe that there's a. Fa- they believe that that we are the offspring of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, which of course is false. Uh, what is the nature of these beings? The teaching of Mormonism, found in their doctrine and covenant, says this: the Father has flesh and bones. That's what it says. The Father has flesh and bones as tangible as man's. He is as tangible as man. All right, they have many verses that they try to go, to go go to to try to prove something like this, but it's not in the Bible. But we should not confer from the fact that because God speaks of himself uh, using masculine pronouns, and we should use masculine pronouns because this is how we are supposed to pray to God. This is how God reveals himself. He hasn't re- revealed himself in feminine pronouns, and so we are just to obey the Bible and what it says, but not to confer from those texts that God is actually a male that he looks like a male, that he has flesh and bones, as many have done. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Pretty easy? Okay. Next thing. God is the father of a nation, and he is the father of Jesus Christ. The Bible says a lot about the fatherhood of God. It really does. You can you can distinguish that category in multiple different ways. God is the father of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what does that mean that God is the father of Jesus Christ? How do you understand that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Amen. There was a relationship. That's right. That's right. So though the title and the picture of God the Father is evidenced throughout the Bible, we will find that the greatest significance of God's rela- like the, the greatest significance of God being a father is not in relation to Israel. It's not in relation to believers, um, but his, the greatest relation that God is as a father is to Jesus Christ, his son from all eternity. He is the true Israel. He is the true son. Um, and there's a big difference between capital S, sonship of Jesus Christ, versus the lowercase s, sonship of believers, right? You don't want to, uh, you don't want to conflict the two together. 
So concerning the real distinction that exists between the divine son and those who are redeemed, who become sons, one theologian said this. He says, it should be pointed out that although Jesus addressed God as father, speaking of his personal and distinguished relationship to the father, um, he, says, he says that although Jesus addressed God as Father and taught his disciples to, to do the same, he never referred to God as our Father. Anything come into your mind when I say that? The Lord's Prayer, right? What was happening in the Lord's Prayer? That's right. This is what the Gentiles are doing. But when you pray, and that's plural there, when you pray, talking to his disciples, this is how you address God. Our Father, who is in heaven, right? This is how you are supposed to pray. There are many instances in the Bible where Jesus could have said, our God, but he never does. He, he, he explains how his disciples are supposed to pray. Um, but he never says, I'm going to our Father, right? He never actually... Um, puts them on the same standing ground as himself with God, as if their relationship to the Father was the same. Even in that prayer, I don't believe Jesus actually prayed that prayer, that, that what we were just talking about, that our, our Father, this Lord's Prayer. I don't believe Jesus actually prayed that prayer. Uh, he might have prayed some of that prayer, but in it, what did he ask his disciples to do? Make sure you ask for the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive us of our debts, Right? He, and he says that as we forgive those who, who trespass against us. And so there is this element of which this prayer was specifically for his disciples. That there's elements of that which Jesus would not have prayed. Uh, but some of it he would have, of course. Um, so you see, there is this difference. You see it in the scripture where the sonship of Christ is extremely different. It's of another world a difference, even with speaking to Mary Magdalene in John twenty seventeen, he says that I am going to my father and your father. That would have been a great place for him to say, I'm going to our father. But he says, I'm going to my father and your father. He could have coupled those two things together, but he didn't. Um, so you can see that in many different verses, even the language Jesus uses as a son to the father would be inappropriate uh, for one of us to use. For instance, go with me to John fourteen seven. John fourteen seven. Now these are things only the Son of God can say. John fourteen seven. What does it say? If you had known me, you would have known my Father. This is the Son speaking to his Father. If you would have known me, you would have known my Father. My father also, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Isn't that incredible? Now, if a believer in this church comes up to me and says, if you would have known me, you would have known my father, right? We'd probably be talking to elders real fast, something like that. Um, but there are things that Jesus says that we simply cannot say. John eight thirty six is just looking at some of the examples. He says, therefore, the son shall make you free and deed. The son shall make you free and you shall be free indeed. Only the divine son can make you free. 
So there's many differences to uh, the sonship that we bear and how God is a father to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the eternal son. Any questions on that? Yeah. That's right. Um, And you have many things like that. You have many things. You have many things like that, um, where uh, the language of the son, uh, we 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 couldn't even speak in such a way. It'd be inappropriate to use such language. He he reveals the father. You see that in Matthew eleven. No one knows the father except me. Is what he says. Um, and except he says, no one knows the father except me. And for those who I choose to reveal him, whoever I choose to reveal him, that's what the son does. He reveals the father. And speaking of Jesus's intimate, uh, relationship with God, when he called him father, um, and his own father, I would say, he says there are different studies and you'll find this interesting in research that shows, um, Something that's pretty revealing. They show that the practice of a Jewish person to own God as his personal father in Jewish literature before Christ and well after was virtually non-existent. Um, A concept that was unheard of. We even see that in John. Um, There have been some pretty thorough studies of rabbinic literature which shows that the Jews throughout history have spoken of the Father, but they never began to pray to the Father until 10th century A.D. That's incredible. 10th century A.D. is when, in these rabbinical writings, they actually began to address God as Father. Yet in Scripture in the New Testament, Christians were praying to God for a thousand years earlier as father than the Jewish people had even began to express, right? Had even began to pray, which is, which is so telling. And, and they, they got it from Christ, who was their model of what true prayer to the father looked like. He modeled that in their midst. Uh, and that's the reason we speak of God as our father and the reason why Paul teaches this as well. So in almost... Speaking of prayer and in connection to that, in almost all of Jesus' prayers, he addresses God as Father with the exception of one prayer. Which one was that? That's right. That's right. Isn't that incredible? There's, There's a lot there. Um. This is one of the only prayers where God, where Christ did not address him as Father. Why do you believe that is? Why did Jesus not address God as Father? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's deeper than that, right? Because Jesus... He wasn't going to the cross and say, now it's time that I say that thing I'm supposed to say. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that he's up on this cross, he's being crucified. 
It's not that he necessarily had to keep in touch or keep intact this, 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 this prophecy or this, this saying that we have in, in Psalm 22. Um, but it was because Jesus was actually being forsaken. Is why he is why he said that verse is because he was he was actually being forsaken. It wasn't just words for him to say. It it perfectly reflected what he was experiencing. You see that the content of that process that of that prophecy was being fulfilled experientially in Jesus. And I believe the the reason for that prophecy the. And the reason for the fact that Jesus quoted this was because of the momentary change in relationship. You see where he's calling God Father, 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 but on the cross something happens, right? On the cross something else takes place. You have this, I believe Jesus was even perceiving in the Father, for the first time that he was being treated differently, you see, from the first time he was being treated differently as if he were a sinner, by imputation, as if he were a sinner and not a son. And all of his prayers, he's saying, Father, Father, and he gets on the cross, and it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that it's not just words for Jesus to proclaim from the cross, but it's because this is the experience of the Son. This is the experience of the Son, that the Father's bright countenance was veiled in thick darkness of judgment, and the full weight of punishment due to an entire humanity would be perfectly poured out and exhausted on the head of God's Son. Yes? So I would agree, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Amen. 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 And those words, they were written because they reflected what Jesus was experiencing. It was real forsakenness. It shows the moment in time when Jesus became our substitute and stood in the place of sinners. You see that? Where Jesus became our substitute, where he stood in the place of sinners. We see that all over the Bible where Jesus became our substitute, where Jesus was, he was standing in our place. And it was this time when he became something that God hated. What did he become? He became sin. Yes. And I just wanted to emphasize that the reality of those words also um, display the reality of the sin that is laid upon the Son of God. Yes, that's right. That's right. And you understand that Jesus wasn't just, he wasn't treated as if he was one sinner by imputation. But an entire multitude of a, of a new humanity of sins was concentrated and poured out upon the Lord Jesus. All of the debts, all of the crimes that you have committed against God were all poured back on top of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So as we speak of Jesus as if he was treated as being the greatest sinner that ever was, it is because he was, he, the, it was the greatest amount of sin to ever been imputed to one person because it, it's what it stood for was the sins of a whole entire humanity, a new humanity, a people who God would forgive. That's what the Father would, in turn, pour out on his own Son. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That verse was there for that purpose, for that reason, to be fulfilled and to display what was actually taking place. The reality that Jesus was experiencing on the cross was from a God that had forsaken him. It's very profound. It's very, uh, it's very sobering. And this is the, the price of your adoption. If you think about it, this is the price of your adoption. That's the condition of your adoption. That the father must have forsaken his son. The son must have been forsaken by his father. And he was forsaken willingly. The Lord Jesus was forsaken willingly. He delighted to do the will of God. It pleased the Father to crush him. And the condition for you and I to become sons and daughters of God, the very basis of our standing is in the abandonment of Jesus Christ when the Father turned his back on his own son. You see... The only reason that you can rest secure in the fact that you won't be cast away is because Jesus was cast away in your place. It's because Jesus was forsaken in your place. He was abandoned. Um, Our Father will not forsake us because Jesus was forsaken in our place. Understanding the cross and what took place on the cross really gives us insight into verses like John 3.16. It's a very off-quoted verse. Many people know this verse, but hardly anyone understands this verse. Right? It makes, it makes sense in this context that the Father so loved the world, which speaking of the intensity of His love, that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the language of exchange. He gave His Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish because Jesus, he stood in their place. Jesus bore the penalty of their sins. That's why you won't perish. That's why someone will not perish is because Jesus bore the wrath of God for them on their behalf. That those who ever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's blood-bought. Eternal life is blood-bought. Purchased by the precious blood of the Son. And such such is the love of the Father for sinners. Yes? And Jesus said that. I'll back up. It wasn't me that said that. Uh, and so that's actually a debated question. So I'm glad you brought it up because I don't have the answer. But um, uh, but I think uh, I lean to the, I lean to the fact that no one will see the Father. Uh, in in some sense, I believe um, 
You have John 1, which says that no man has seen God. But, yeah, no one has seen God at any time. But the Father has explained him. The Father has made him known. The Father reveals, or the Son, sorry. The Son has explained him. The Son, thank you. The Son has explained him. The Son has revealed him and made him known. There is some debate about that, but a lot of people would lean that way, that no one has seen God at any time. But the Son explains him. The Son perfectly represents him in heaven and earth um, and reveals his glory. Uh, there are some verses in Scripture which you, you might, you know, have a debate about that, you know, and what, what that consists of. But then you have those verses which, which speak of God and who he is and the fact that no one has seen him and Jesus makes him known. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Pre-incarnate, maybe a Christophany, something like that, where the Son is revealing God. Possibly something like that. So that's what we have in John, John 3.16. You have Jesus being numbered among the transgressors. So that, you see that in, in Isaiah 53, so that you might be numbered among the sons of God. There was this great exchange. Jesus was being numbered among the transgressors. We see that at the end of Isaiah 53. So that you might be saved, that you might be numbered among those who are part of the family of God. The love of God is so vast. Even George Whitfield says, The Son of God became the Son of Man so that he might make sons of men sons of God. And I love that. Uh, I love that quote that he has. John Newton, he has, he wrote this hymn. And, and, and the title of it is, How shall I put thee among the children? How will God make you a son? How will God make you a daughter? And the Bible answers this question. Uh, by the way, you can learn a lot from hymns. You can learn a lot from uh, the music that we play here. Uh, my hymnal, it, you can get so much doctrine out of your hymnal. It, it teaches so many great things. But he says this, John Newton, How shall I put thee among the children? It explains who we are and what God has done. He says this, Alas, by nature how depraved, how prone to every ill, our lives to Satan how enslaved, how obstinate our will. And can such sinners be restored, such rebels reconciled? Can grace sufficient means afford to make a foe a child? Yes, grace has found the wondrous means which shall effectual prove to cleanse us from our countless sins and teach our hearts to love. Jesus for us a ransom paid and died that we might live. His blood a full atonement made and cried aloud, forgive. Yet one thing must grace provide to bring us home to God, or we shall slight the Lord who died and trample on his blood. The Holy Spirit must reveal the Savior's work and worth. Then the hard heart begins to feel a new and heavenly birth. Thus bought with blood and born again, redeemed and saved by grace, rebels and God's own house obtain a son's and daughter's place. Isn't that incredible? There are so many benefits that you have as a son or daughter of God. What are the benefits? Yes. That's fine. Mm. 
Mm. Exactly. Mm. Amen. 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 So he says he makes wretches his treasure. Isn't that what he says? He makes a wretch his treasure. Isn't that incredible? You need to read hymns. You need to read hymns. The benefits of being a son or daughter of God are huge. They're so big. There are no benefits to being an unbeliever. When it comes to the fatherhood of God, when it comes to him being your father through adoption, you have no father. You don't share in any of the benefits of sons and daughters through adoption. You may have an earthly father, but you don't have a heavenly father. There is hope for an unbeliever, but they are without God in the world, in some sense, without hope in that sphere. Um, let's let's move on to another. Let's move on to another piece here. Um, God is the Father of His children. Right. God is the father of his children. That So we've said that God is in some sense, in the physical sense, we are the offspring of God because we are part of his, his creational handiwork. But spiritually speaking, from the womb we were not children of God through adoption. We had, did not have the Heavenly Father in that way at all. But from the womb, it says we have gone astray. From the womb, we are children of the devil, children of wrath, those who are exposed to the wrath of God, liable to real danger, objects of the wrath of God. And my question is, how did we become sons and daughters of God? By what means did God use to make us sons and daughters of God? By what means? What did God do to place you among his family. What's that? My question is, what did, <laughs> what did God do? What did God do? How does God make, how does God bring a son or daughter into his family? Through the cross. What would you say? Through adoption. God does it through adoption. You see this verse, you see verses about this uh, a lot of places in the New Testament. God does it through adoption, God's act of adoption, right? We did not become children of God by any merit of our own, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 says that we became sons by faith. How do you explain adoption? What is it? What is adoption? Hmm. That's good. That's good. Adoption really is, in some sense, it has a lot of it. It has a, a a lot of the same qualities as adoption that you see here. 
on earth. What happens in adoption here? What do you do? Very true. Mm. That was good. That was better than some of the examples I have in here. What else happens? What 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 are you doing as a parent in adoption? Loving. You are loving. What specifically? What's the action? That's the motive, right? And that's kind of what what are what what are you what are you actually doing in adoption? In some sense. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. They are in a place that is not healthy for them. Taking them for your own, right? You're taking someone who's not in your family and putting them in your family, right? Yeah, that's what God does. He takes someone who is not of his family and he makes them a part of his family. That's what God does in adoption. Very, very simply, you are not in the family of God. God adopted you and placed you inside his family where he became your father. You had a father, but it was not the heavenly father. Um, But God adopted you. The sinner first experiences, God brings about adoption in this way, the sinner first experiencing by the hearing of the gospel, the effectual drawing and calling of God, John 6, 44. They experience regeneration by the monergistic power of the Holy Spirit. We see that in John 3, 8. Uh, who gives faith? Who gives repentance, which a sinner exercises and is thereby justified when they exercise faith, and then directly linked to justification is adoption, where they are welcomed into and ushered into the family of God. That's, the, that's, this, that's this act which God does, this string of events which God does in order to place you among his family. Adoption is, it's like justification in that it's judicial, it has a legal significance, um, but also, like justification, adoption is, it doesn't have a renovative element. You know what I'm saying by that? Regeneration has a renovative element. It actually changes who you are. Like it, it actually changes you spiritually. Justification doesn't do that, right? Uh, it's, more, it's legal. It has to do with your status. It has to do with who you are, your identification. It, but it doesn't actually renovate you. Ju- justification isn't the thing that actually gives you a new heart. But it's where God clears your guilt and, and applies a status to you. Um, adoption is like that. Adoption doesn't have a renovative element. Just like justification. You can't grow in justification. You can't grow in adoption. Right? It's a title that God gives you. It's a privilege. It's a right. Um, it, it's not transformative. It's a right bestowed. It's authority bestowed. And it's a new status given because a new relationship has been developed. Um, you have a new relationship with the Father through adoption. Right? You didn't become a son by justification, but specifically through God's act of adoption, which is a direct consequence of justification. Right? A judge can clear your guilt, and he can make you acceptable, but that doesn't mean he's going to welcome you into his family. Right? It doesn't mean he's going to invite you over for dinner that you might dine with him. Right? Yes? So you're saying that you have 
It's good. Very. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm, no, that's good. Ephesians one actually Ephesians one actually speaks about that very thing. That's good. It is adoption is the work of a God. It's a choice made by election. Very similar to um, what we experience. So adoption is the outcome of saving faith, stems from justification, and thus it concurs with John one twelve. if you want to go there. John one twelve, and our time is fleeing. And someone read John 1, actually start John, John 1, 11 through 13. Someone read that. Yes, go ahead, brother. That's good. As many as received him, and that's speaking about embracing Christ, his person, and his work. Embracing him, receiving him, and applying him to your soul by faith. To them he gave the right to become children of God, and then even to those who believe in his name. So every believer has been given a blood-bought right and privilege to be owned as a son or daughter of God. They have access to the Father of Heaven. And that Father has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, to witness to your spirit that it is true. Right? That it is true. What's true? You are now a son. You are a son. You are a daughter. I love that. He sends His Spirit to testify to our spirit. Um, as we said earlier, others don't have that relationship. Others who have not play, uh, pray, uh, others who have not believed in the Lord Jesus, don't have God as their father. Other other children do not have the privilege of asking or speaking to God on the on a basis of peace, on the basis of the a standing ground of the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't have the privilege to speak to God as their father, to own them as their father. They can't say that. There's no peace in saying that because it doesn't reflect reality. It isn't the truth of those who don't know God as their father. And so you can say it's true. Unbelievers do not have a right to call God Father. That's something given to you by adoption. That's something given to you by adoption. As Jesus even said very plainly concerning them, very, them, those who the Father is, the devil is their father. A seed of Satan is what he is calling them. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The whole world lies in the lap of him. Everyone who's outside of Christ lies in the lap of the devil, of Satan himself. And he says, your desires are to do the will of your Father. So how do we know if we are sons of the Most High? And I'll end here pretty soon. 
Well, whose desires do you want to do? Whose desires do you want to fulfill? Whose desires do you long to fulfill? Are you, this will really evidence whether or not you are a child of wrath or a child of God. Um, whether you love the father of lies or the father of truth. I mean, is your life swallowed up with this all-consuming passion to please God as your father, to love him? And do you love the Son of God? In adoption, God will give us his spirit to testify to our spirit that we are sons. There is also a, an all-consuming love for Jesus Christ in a believer, in someone who's been adopted. There is the Spirit of God who comes and testifies, and there is this love that they now have. Jesus, he, Jesus here, he speaks of it. He says this. He testified. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. You would love me if this was true of you. If God were really your father, you would love me. You would have love for me. You would have love for Jesus. Um, there's just one final verse that I that I want. Maybe I want to try to mention. Actually, I want to end with something else. Romans five one says, "Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God." Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And my question to you is, do you believe that God is your Father? That can be very abstract for some of us. But you have to believe in what Scripture says about the Father. Oftentimes we, we believe what it says about the Son. But you have to believe what it says about the Father. We have a triune faith in a sense where the Father is the object of our faith, where the, where the Son and the Spirit and the life of the Christian, he's believing, the, 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 he's believing in the persons of the triune God. He's being led by the Spirit of God. All who are sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. There are facts that the Bible portrays about the Father that we must believe he is our Heavenly Father and that he loves us. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. Or do you doubt the Heavenly Father's love for you and His affections towards you. Do you believe He loves you? Right? Press into that. Um, I just want to end with a quote from Octavius Winslow. He says, Here is the grand secret of a constant ascending of the affections to God. If you do find it difficult to comprehend the love of God towards you, Read it in the cross of his dear son, which says this. He quotes John, uh, John 1, or 1 John. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, meaning the love of the Father towards us. You want to see his love manifested towards you because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. If you have wrapped the arms of your faith around Jesus Christ, it's because the Father loves you. It's because the Father loves you. It's because the Father is affectionate for you. He has affections towards you. He delights in you. He delights in you. 
You need to believe that. You need to believe that the Father delights in you. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, God truly loves you, truly delights in you. Isn't that incredible? It's remarkable. There is now no condemnation between you and the Father. Isn't that incredible? There's no more wrath for you. But Jesus Christ has brought you to the Father, and God has made peace in his Son, that whoever might come to his Son would experience that peace, that they would no longer be standing under the wrath of God. Amen. 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 Let's go to worship.